Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. Hey everyone, we are back. We've been away on a hiatus for quite some time. And so we're kind of trying to go back to our roots where we have things we've been thinking about and we're talking to each other throughout the week. And if we find a thing that we sort of have found bizarre or something that doesn't make sense or we want to talk through, we've kind of just been sharing with each other those things. And this week has been sort of funny because we sort of stumbled across this idea of justice. And it's something that I've thought about before. I had read, I can't for the life of me find it, the article that I had read, but it was early on in my deconstruction. It was probably around 2015, 2016. And someone, and I believe his name was Matthew. So if anyone knows this article, that would be great if you could (laughs) send it to me because I can't find it. But he had written on the American, quote unquote, justice system and how it was based on the American conception of God, where justice requires the punishment for wrongdoings. And it's not actually about restoring people to community and restoring people to health. It's about isolating them and penalizing them for what they've done and separating them from community punishment and not restoration. And Mm -hmm. that's based on kind of this vision of God and how God operates with hell, essentially, and how sin is punished, uh, punishable by death, uh, punishable by isolation, punishable by taking outside the city gates, um, goats and pigeons and blood sacrifice required, all that kind of stuff. And that was a fascinating thing that I thought about for a really, really long time. And so, yeah, so Chris and I just got talking about justice this week and justice, the justice of God. And I think it started off in the Garden of Eden. So Krista, do you, <laughs> do, thinking back over everything that we <laughs> thought about this week, I think the rant that I had voice messaged you at some point started about somewhere about the idea of how unjust the punishment system was in the Garden of Eden. And not that I think, Krista, I think that the Garden of Eden is real. We did definitely, I at least I know I did. I'm pretty sure, Krista, mm-hmm. you did believe that mm-hmm. it was a real place. But I think there's a lot of ideas and structures. And no matter how you interpret it, whether it's real or not real, uh, there's a lot of analogies and a lot of systems that are based on the things in the Garden of Eden being true, whether the actual place was or not. And so this idea of justice of you have Adam and Eve and you have Eve sort of disobeys God. He's given her these directions. She disobeys. And then not only are Adam and Eve plunged into punishment in their mortal um sort of lives or or they become mortal because I don't think there was death before, but mm-hmm. they're punished for, for the remainder of their days uh, as live human beings. But then they're also punished for 
the rest of eternity. Do you want to jump in there first before we sort of? Yeah. Well, it was interesting to me because it was, I received your, your voice memo and it's a concept that I actually just have never thought through fully. And so I had some of these aha moments are like yeah wait a second this is messed up (laughs) when you were (laughs) talking to me because the way you had phrased it too was not only did Adam and Eve receive a punishment for their actions but all subsequent human beings from them you know all of humankind Mm -hmm. and that's what really stuck with me was you know as a parent you know if my daughter did something wrong simply because I told her not to do it I can't imagine first punishing her so severely for something like that you know like Mm -hmm. they they had never been introduced to mistakes or re like redirection is what we do with toddlers a lot of time like they don't understand no and they don't really have the capacity to redirect themselves or contain themselves when their curiosity is so large so like if they really want to stick their finger in the electrical socket you can say no 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 and they know the concept of no but their curiosity is so strong that they will typically just try the thing that they want to try and so you redirect them or or, and then you coach them you know you're trying to teach and coach them and it's like okay well god didn't really do that he just kind of let it unfold and apparently he didn't know what was going on because then all of a sudden He's there and he's like, Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done? Kind of thing, as if he didn't know. So then there's this huge punishment for their actions, but then not just them. It's like all all the children to come. And would I punish my future children for a mistake that Alice made? Like that seems heavy handed. Grandkids. Yeah, totally. Not only does it seem heavy handed, it just seems utterly ridiculous. And so it's like, okay, well, does an all loving God, like the God that I believe, I try to believe in, how would that person or that God, how does that, how does he fit in this scenario where he created the system, he created these beings, he would know their humanness and their likelihood to try things or want to explore, then just the punishment to come after that, it's like, oh, wow, like, I don't know. I was just flabbergasted. Flabbergasted was probably the best way to put it. And you probably heard that in my reply. Like, And just honestly, so sad too. Like I was so sad thinking about how as a parent, I could never do that to my kid. I couldn't do that to my single kid. I couldn't do that to my future kids. I couldn't do that to my grandkids. Where, how does that make any sense? That's not right. Then trying to hold that up against this perfect being that I hold in such high esteem. And how do those two things mesh together? Like, Mm. wow. To be fair, it's like decent people wouldn't even do that to their worst enemy. Do you know what I mean? Like that? Yeah that level of punishment. And that was, I think that was sort of the first layer we had talked about. And then as we were sort of going back and forth, we kind of were like picking at the layers, you know, you have this, like, like you said, being flabbergasted and quite, quite almost in a heart, heartbroken sense, thinking about God has created this system. So he's not only made humans and wired them a specific way, and he's made them perfect and blameless. They may not be um, to the level of God himself, but they're definitely pure Mm -hmm. and they're definitely um, without sin. And he's made them in this garden and he's made all the rules and he's set the entire system up. And then, like you said, there's this 
curiosity or this wiring that humans have that isn't it's not part of the fallenness it's it's neither here nor there this idea of what's behind door a or door b or what is Mm. around that corner that's part of what makes humans creative and makes them uh adventurous and makes them daring and bold and all these Mm -hmm. very good qualities so apparently god wires that all into humans and then he sets them up in this perfect system where everything's lovely and good and their only relationship is with each other and with these amazing animals where there's no broken trust there and so the animals come to adam and eve and there's no death and there's no there's no sin there's no evil and their only other relationship is with god himself who apparently walks in the garden amongst them and they're supposed to based on their surroundings and their own goodness make decisions about extremely horrible things that they don't even know anything about like the knowledge of good and evil they don't even know what evil is yeah they don't have the capacity to understand what evil would look like we know from the theology that what separates us from god is that we are no longer like him. We're no longer good. We're no longer pure. We're no longer um, in direct commune with him because that relationship has been broken because we're no longer similar to God and can't be in proximity to his holiness. And so we have this brokenness that comes, but based on that, then we know that there is this close proximity that they have to God and they are good and they are operating out of their own goodness. So they have this wiring and then they have this modeling that's supposed to be all good. And then they also have an internal standard that doesn't understand sin or fallenness or blame or evilness or deception. And they're supposedly tempted, which who let the tempter into the garden in the first place uh, definitely wasn't their doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so somehow God has set up a system of choice and set up a tempter in this garden amongst his children who know nothing of temptation and know nothing of evil and know nothing of deception and know actually nothing of what choices lead to in the sense of long-term or even death because they don't know what death is assuming at this point Um, They don't know what rape or violence or war or famine or terror, all these horrible things that happen to humans across the planet based on what we now say, oh, it's because it's fallen. They don't have any concept of those things. And yet they're given this choice in this system to choose a thing without actually knowing any of the implications. And the assumption of God then isn't that they're operating out of naivety or goodness that that maybe Eve going into the interaction with the serpent doesn't recognize deception and doesn't recognize what evil actually could look like and is going on her own wiring to the best of her ability and the best of her tools is maybe perhaps a mix of curiosity, a mix of naivety, and going into that with the best of intentions or the best coping tools that she has at the moment. And that is not the assumption that God hands her when he decides to roll out this deluge of punishment, not just for 
all human generations, but for the rest of eternity. Well, and I think that it's so important to kind of emphasize some of that point too, because when we when we even think about crime in our fallen world, so much is you know prioritized on the intent. Did you mean to do this? Did you mean to hurt this person? Was it an accident? And obviously for Eve, it wasn't like she was premeditating some sort of (laughs) malevolent, you know, spiteful crime where she's like, huh, I'm so prideful. I'm going to get God and he doesn't even see me coming. Like that, that kind of internal attitude wouldn't have been there. No, because sin wasn't there. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I'm, I am making assumptions and reading between the lines here a bit, but like they were pure and blameless. Like you had said, their modeling was God. The only thing that we can really say is they knew that they weren't supposed to eat from that tree because God was like, Hey guys, don't eat from that tree. (laughs) And it, and like, that's all we know. Right. So they're, the biggest mistake was just that they tried something that someone had said, Hey, don't do that. And we, we always need to know why, like even, even Simon Sinek knows that, you know, if you follow (laughs) Simon Sinek, like, what's the why, what's the why, you know? So like, I just think that it's so crazy that even in our current broken justice system, we can figure out that intent matters and in my Christianity, I never questioned this story, the very foundational story of like the whole text, mm-hmm. you know, starts here. And it's like, I believe that God is good, but how does a good God set these two people up for such a losing battle and then be like, oh, I'm going to punish you big time for this. And it's like, well, dude, who's the problem here? Who's the adult here? Who's the omniscient being here? Like, I think somebody else needs a spanking here. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's again to the whole, like, as we sort of started to pick it apart a bit more as well, you kind of have this, um, it's like a level of almost pettiness of of almost like a revenge thing because something I had thought about after that article that I was talking about that's totally vague and useless because nobody's going to find it. But just this idea that God basically was interested in meeting out epic punishment and which is not what you would do, like you said, Krista, with having a kid, or even if you don't have kids, like normal, mm-hmm. normal people don't think like this. Like, this is not a normal process of thinking, not only setting aside that you created the whole system, you created and wired those beings that way. You're omniscient. You already know what's going to happen. You're supposedly understanding like all good and all evil. And so you know what the implications are going to be for thousands of years for humans, like I said, the, the war, the famine, the rape, the, the mutilations, the whatever, all these horrors, you know, but on top of it, you actually are the one that brings the curses. So you, you first set them up for this choice where there's actually no choice. And you and I have touched on free will before, but there's, mm-hmm. there's actually no choice because a choice would be a learning process 
where you choose poorly. Um, and then if you have young children or people who are below you, which is what we are to God, we're below God. We are always told we're like children to God because we just don't mm-hmm. understand anything. So if we didn't understand anything, then were these children under God and choices are supposed to be learning processes where you learn and you grow. But the choice process in the Garden of Eden was not about learning and growing. It was about obedience and it was about you don't obey me and therefore I cut you out. And there was no growth there. There was actually a descent into absolute terror in this life and then in the, in the next to come. And I think on top of it, it wasn't just you lose the separation from God, you get kicked out of the garden, now you're going to die, and then all your children are going to die, and they're not living in the garden either. Like, God actively brings curses on them. Like, he actively says, you will be under your husband. Your childbirth pains will increase. You will be a slave to, you mm-hmm. know, the soil. He condemns the, the animals. I mean, essentially the serpent, but he's like, you know, you'll be crushed. You'll be underfoot. Yeah. Underfoot. And obviously I know that's a foreshadowing of like, you know, Jesus is the victor and he's going to crush Satan. We could have just crushed him then. Like why wait 2000? Well, yeah. Like that, that was one of the things wants. that I was thinking about was like, you know, we always talk about the Bible as this is the good news. Yeah. And this is a story of grace, you know, and then when you just start here at the very beginning, you know, you don't even get to, I think, chapter five before all this happens. It's just like, is this a story of grace? Because what I see is like a setup so that grace has to eventually come. But why do you have to initiate so much pain and suffering to show that you can also be gracious? You know, like, I feel like that's a very abusive trait. Like if your husband was like, oh, well, um, I'm going to set you up and I'm going to give you all of this pain and suffering. But then because you're broken and bruised at my hand, I am then going to bandage you and, you know, give you a bath and massage you to show you that I can also be kind. It's yeah. like, no, I think I'm just going to skip all that and try a new partner. <laughs> I know. And that's the thing, right? Is that we're like, we're, we're always told that God is this model, this model example for our human relationships. But when you actually start applying some of the way that this theology paints God, um, none of it is a model. It's not a model for Pretty dangerous children. It's yeah. not modeling for husband and wives. It's not a modeling for how nations should get along. Like none of it is a model. And you're right. It's like, why would you, in what sort of psychotic mindset, if you had the ability to grant forgiveness and grace and mercy because you're supposed to be so much smarter and better um, and a better model for humans, why would you wait 2000 years for the absolute worst of the worst for people to be crushed to people for people to be broken and these are supposed to supposed to be your children that you love that were told yeah. over and over again in the bible that god so loved the world you know no he didn't like he didn't like that it to to allow countless humans 
to literally be wiped out, to be overtaken by other warring cultures, to be wiped out in a flood. Let's not forget the flood comes shortly after and he just wipes everybody mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So you have this total inability to to forgive and to move on and grow up and process and give grace to these humans that supposedly slighted you so badly by eating a freaking apple like they didn't kill god's family they didn't like rape his kids they didn't (laughs) didn't kick his cat (laughs) they didn't kick his cat or bust his cabin in and like set it on fire like humans ate an apple like the first two humans he made one ate an apple in a garden the apple had nothing actually attached to it it was god who then implemented the repercussions of that. And you have all of that and you have to wait 2000 years of the worst of the worst to happen to your children before you finally go, oh, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Well, you could have forgiven them at the beginning. And if you wanted to punish them for disobeying, you could have kicked them out of the garden for like two days. And be like, oh, is it fun digging up dirt and like toiling in the soil? No, it's not. But it's okay. Come back in the house. And even that would be crazy because nobody would ever kick their kids out of their house for two days as a punishment. Um, unless yeah, for being curious and eating an apple, yeah, for being curious and eating something that you told them not to eat. So instead, God waits 2000 years and then writes the problems of his own system that he created and tries to fix the rules of his own system that he created and tries to make himself look good by saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you're like, you could have just forgiven them. You wrote the rules of the blood, the requiring of blood sacrifice. You wrote the rules that the wages of sin are death. Like you, that, that is, this is all your construction. You created Lucifer, you knew what was going to happen at every single stage. And mm-hmm. now your job is 2000 years later to show up and go, well, I'm going to fix the problem, but I'm actually not going to fix it in whole. I'm only going to fix it if you agree that you desperately need me and submit to me and come back to me in the terms that I am saying and laying out for you. And if you don't, you are still on the path to eternal destruction for things that you never did in a system you didn't create or ask for. It's just an incredibly cruel system. And it's no wonder that our concept of justice sometimes is that we we have to have the death penalty. We don't in Canada, but like we have to have the death penalty. Uh, we have to force people into cruel conditions and labor versus the idea that restoration or how do you restore people like when people have fallen or done something wrong do you whack them with a stick mm-hmm. or how do you figure out how to find their heart and restore it and i know that there are some versions of christianity that interpret this whole thing totally different and like um penal substitution isn't on the plate and like eternal damnation for all people isn't on the plate. They're more universalist. Everybody gets to heaven, this kind of thing. So there's more restorative versions of Christianity, but certainly yeah. the version that we grew up with was justice as punishment, not justice as restoration and wholeness. Well, I do think that the new Testament was really pushed to me as 
restoration mm. and that like the old testament was like oh well that just happened before but everything that's of importance is reiterated and emphasized in the new testament it's the new covenant and we're under the new covenant so mm. we don't really need to worry too much about what happened in the old testament and you know in the new testament jesus is about healing and you know bringing people to mm. the father and so i maybe that's why i never really thought through this whole piece with Adam and Eve. And even now, like one of the things that came up in my day, my work day, I had um, a course at work uh, for leadership. And um, just one little bit that came out of it was, you know, having what they call the most respectful interpretation in an interaction that you have with like Mm -hmm. a colleague or something. And so I was just thinking about that when you were talking about this like if I am trying to believe in an all loving God, if I'm trying to hold on to my faith, what is the most respectful interpretation of this story that I could even perceive? And I am just a little bit at a loss. Like I can't yet think of a way to make this story seem respectful or just or right or good even if I'm like, oh, hey, maybe it wasn't literal and it was just like a precursor little blurb of a story, but the real story is Jesus coming and dying mm-hmm. on the cross or something, you know, like it just doesn't, I just don't know how to put that together. And I think some people would argue that, you know, Jesus came and he died for us because he loved us so much. So even though there was all this suffering, he too is willing to come and suffer for our sake. And it's like, well, he suffered for one lifetime, you know, and yeah. not and only till he was 30. And for some of it, or 33, I can't remember if it was 30 or 33, but a lot of his life wasn't suffering. And there have been, you know, generations and generations of humankind that have been under this brokenness that have, you know, put up with human suffering. And can his one death cover that? And I guess, you know, in in our theology, it was, yes, of course he can, because he's the perfect sacrifice. But just in terms of weightiness, you know, like this one human God-man for, you know, millions of people who have suffered, it, it still doesn't seem to line up for me. Yeah, it's bad when like work, like HR things are better, <laughs> well, yeah, it's than, like... are better than the scripture. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm like trying my best. I'm like, Jesus, God, Father, you know, out there, like, I really want to believe in you. I don't, like, as I've said on this podcast before, I really don't want to be an atheist. But like, what is the most respectful interpretation of this that I can come up with to make you look good? Like, I'm trying my best here, pal, to make you look good. And like, you're making it pretty hard. You're making it rough. (laughs) Well, and also given the fact that it's like, we are actively told that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. So it doesn't matter if Jesus was nice and the Old Testament God was a bit whatever. It's supposed to be the same God. And it also Jesus existence and his death requirement as our theology sort of outlined the evangelical theology is because of the old Testament God. Like it is a continuation. It's yeah, of course. the reason there has to be blood sacrifice of Jesus to have one man die for everyone's sins. The perfect sacrifice is because of the punishment and the curses 
that God laid out in the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. And I think for me on the end of the whole like atheism thing, it's like, I just don't care anymore. I sort of feel like I don't want to waste my time and my energy trying to make something make sense that doesn't. And it's sort of like, I'm not an atheist. I think there are all sorts of ways of spirituality and things that we can think about. There's just so much out there in terms of wisdom and kindness and community and spirituality that doesn't mean tying ourselves in knots to make a specific version of it fit. But it is like you said, when you're in that position and you're actually looking at it, it's so hard to make it make any sense. One, why would you set it up that way? Why would you even make, why would you make a system of punishment in the first place that requires that level, not only of punishment where you're excommunicated from your own father and the father's excommunicated from his own children, but also why would you make it so that the fallenness of humans is at such great capacity? Like if a dog goes bad, a dog's like, I'm a bite you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> or like if a hamster goes bad, what's a hamster going to do? Do they just poop a lot or like what? <laughs> do, right. And why make human wiring at the capacity to literally torture, rape, kill, um, maim, cause famine, greed, all of these things, like why wire human capacity to do that just from one choice that is eating an apple? Like it doesn't make any sense. Like there's no, there is no logic. Well, and I think too about that scripture that says something like too much is given, much is expected. Mm. And if I turn that back on God and said, you have been given, I don't even know by whom, but somehow you are this omniscient all-powerful being i expect more from you than this yeah you know and so if the scripture is there for us then shouldn't he be this perfect example of that and yet we can see this story and be like well i kind of expected a great god to have a different setup or was this like your first iteration and be like ooh, if i were to do this again i would do it differently but here we are and we're gonna see this one through (laughs) next time i make a world we won't have that in here (laughs) (laughs) that's actually a really good point like i never really thought of that of like if God sets out these extremely high expectations, where even if by choosing one wrong thing, which like has had implications in my own life in terms of fear of choosing wrong. Oh, yeah. That fear of choosing wrong comes partly from that story. It wasn't just like Eve murdered a person in the garden and did a really bad thing. She made this tiny little decision based on limited information and not really following God's you know, word to her and killed the entire world for it. You know what I mean? And no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. And then, and we're supposed to live and thrive within that framework. And it's like how, if all these expectations are put on us where we can't even make a wrong decision, uh, I mean, obviously that's really crippling in, in the anxiety realm and whatever. But if you're putting all these expectations on us, like you said, Krista, why aren't these same principles of kindness and grace and whatever expected back of God? 
And why aren't those same standards that we're supposed to be living up to the same back for God? And it's funny for me because that was something I had thought about before. Um, cause I, I had gone vegan some, I think maybe 10 years ago now, but before that, that was something I always struggled with. Cause when I was a young kid, I really loved animals and mm-hmm. I always was told, of course, like animals don't go to heaven, yada, yada. And that was actually something as a young, like a really young person, I really struggled with. Oh yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. Cause like Ruby, imagine Ruby, like Ruby's so oh, good. Yeah. This is dog. Mm-hmm. And it was weird to me to think that the love that I felt for my like cats and my animals and stuff that God didn't have a place for them and didn't have the same level of love for them essentially, because there was nothing for them. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's all the suffering of animals. And I used to lie in bed thinking about how I was going to like break into, once I found out there were such things as pounds, I was like, I would lie in bed thinking about how I was going to like get to a pound on my bike and I would take one of yeah. dad's like shears and like chop open the, like chop open the locks and like, I would like set get them it, free, set them free. Yeah. And so this idea that God didn't care as much um, about them because there was like this tiered reality um, where animals and nature and whatever is at the bottom and humans are at the top, uh, just under angels and whatnot uh, really bothered me. And I thought it's really weird later in life. It's really weird that, I can have more compassion than God. That didn't seem right. Like that my standards were better than what I was feeling were God's, right? Yeah. Um, We talked about that even in the Job episode. Like that's right. We shouldn't be more ethical (laughs) than the Lord. than, Than God. Yeah. I just remember always learning about Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden and it being preached and summed up that it was an issue of pride and that it was Eve's pride and it was Lucifer's pride that really, you know, predestined or like became before the fall. And I feel like that's such a cop out because being proud or having pride is still just this human condition, (laughs) human emotion that we were made to have a capacity for. And if we weren't human, we would have no need of God. And so like our humanness is what, you know, makes us relying upon God and he made us this way. And it goes back to what we were talking about before of why would it be so bad and it therefore acceptable that all of this suffering comes because they were prideful, you know, well, and it, also, it doesn't line up. Well, and also prideful because obviously that's like a sinful state. Pride's never painted as a, a non-sin. They mm-hmm. couldn't, they couldn't have had pride because this was before the fall. Right. So like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's not like, again, we go back to our intentions thing of like, whatever interactions Eve had wasn't based on a sinful version of her nature or her wiring. It was on a pure blameless version of her wiring. So on all fronts, like the story doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I guess that's why there's that um, very famous, um, Instagrammer who her tag is Eve, Eve was framed. Oh yeah, and I I follow her. I think we both follow her, but I I definitely agree because in this scenario it's like okay, well who who's the problem here? <laughs> because um, the more you look at it, the more you think like I don't I don't think that the problem here is on her end. If she's yeah. blameless and she's had this modeling, 
and yeah, she does. She makes a choice that she was just simply told, hey, don't don't eat from that tree. And so it goes back to even your comment of like the pettiness. It just seems petty. But then the punishment is so severe, so mm-hmm. severe. And and severe and cruel, like basic logic is that punishments, like you were saying before, don't stick your finger in a light socket, like punishments that follow disobedience are meant to prevent harm. So if your parents tell you don't run into the street or don't touch a hot stove and you do and you get hit by a car or you burn your hand, the punishment is immediate Um, And it's a tragedy. The parents are heartbroken. Well, and the parents go out of their way to stop it. You know, like if you saw your kid running into the street, you would be chasing after them, sprinting, laying your life in front of that car. And it's like, well, why isn't God sprinting across that garden? Not even present. Yeah. No, don't do it. You know, like anything. And it's just like, do, 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 do. Yeah. Shows up the next day. Oh, what did you do? Why are you wearing? Uh, Why are you naked? <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you know you're naked? Who told you or you were naked. Like yeah. the casualness of God's interaction with the disobedience that then has the most horrific heartbreak breaking implications for humankind for thousands and thousands of years what women suffer under what men suffer under what uh animals and nature suffer under like it's just so horrific on all fronts and as a parent the point of you saying don't do something is the prevention of great harm and we can see that in the story if if god's like eating this physical apple eating this physical apple will introduce some pandora's box of unearthly insane evilness so i'm telling you not to eat this one it was never clearly explained it was like oh you'll know the knowledge of good and evil like knowledge isn't negative like it's, there's no negative connotation there that you can really understand based on god's supposed instructions right Um, and we're not told that there were any other instructions. And so we can't assume that there are, we could assume that there are, or there aren't, but what we're told is very basic and that here, don't eat this. You'll know, you'll understand good and evil. Okay. The point being that God saying not to do that. Sure. That might've been okay. Same as telling your kid not to run into traffic. The harm is going to be intensive for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe immediate after effect, uh, effects are if you die, then your family's going to be heartbroken and it's going to be horrible. Or somebody else might die in the process of a choice that you make. It certainly isn't set up in that way where, like you said, you see God one intervening in a way and going, okay, hold on. You guys are like children. You don't really understand. Obviously I didn't make this clear. Um, you're also good natured because I've made everything good. And I've said that it's all good. So if you're good natured and you're clearly not understanding what the implications are, then geez, I better intervene here. Cause you're not understanding this stove is going to burn you really badly, but two, he actively harms. So punishment for normal parents is to prevent harm, but God then actually purposefully inflicts harm on top of those eternal uh, implications for humans, both physically on this planet and spiritually forever and ever and ever burning in hell. So when the downfall happens, he actually comes in and actively curses and actively 
chooses to harm. And well, yeah, it also seems like it, it, he he chooses some of the punishment as an after effect. Like, okay, you you got disabled because you ran into traffic, but because you disobeyed me, I'm also going to make sure that all your children are disabled. Totally. You know, like that's like, okay, well, <laughs> was what? the second part necessary? Because <laughs> yeah. I think the first part was enough of was a enough lesson. of a punishment. You know? Yeah, like getting kicked out of the garden would have been enough of a punishment if it was that beautiful of a place. He didn't have to actively not only actively heap curses on people and then kick them out, as well as condemn their souls to hell. Like it's just like what the actual feck in hell. You know what I mean? <laughs> feck in hell <laughs> it doesn't make any sense as a parent. Like coming at it from a parent perspective, um, especially if the point is prevention of harm right well yeah and that's what makes you really wonder is like well what what is the point if it's not prevention like it doesn't it's pretty obvious to me in this scenario that he had no intention to prevent it there was no effort you know so then was the whole point to let this story unfold Mm -hmm. so that god's glory could be presented to the world as this beautiful sacrifice for mm-hmm. a problem that he created mm-hmm. like I don't it, it just no matter how I seem to turn it in my hands and massage it like I just can't get it to be a very respectful interpretation <laughs> I think if we want to be clear about it and the struggles that you and I've had with our faith journeys I think if we're going to be really clear about it the point wasn't to prevent harm in this story the point was just obedience and when obedient 100% and when obedience failed then the true nature of god was actually shown and i think that that is something that is very heartbreaking isn't it is to think that the god that we were told to love as young people was actually only concerned with obedience and not with our well-being our well-being and i think that's a really hard one to reconcile because even though i'm not in that place anymore sorry getting teary um but even though i'm not in that place anymore i gave everything crystal like i gave yeah. my life and my thoughts and my choices and everything to god And um, his concern was purity, purity of conformity and obedience. And I think that that is, it's actually interesting because I was listening to just yesterday um, after our sort of back and forth and whatever, uh, but Daniel Miller from the Straight White American Jesus Guys, he does these wee mini um, episodes called It's in the Code there was an interesting thing he said on there, and I thought it tied in really well to what you and I have been discussing. And he said, empathy threatens purity. And I was thinking about it all night. And I was like, purity, like the kind of purity in the Garden of Eden, right? You have ideological purity, you have physical purity, you have spiritual purity, everything's good. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no harm, there's nothing. It's all very much this pure environment, right? So purity and to maintain purity, purity in itself requires that you have these really, really hard, um, I guess, borders, Mm -hmm. right? It requires that you have a really strong, and he was sort of talking about like us and them definitions. So in order to be pure ideologically, where your theology or your ideas are pure and homogenous, or uh, spiritual 
purity where your group is not tainted and is like pure before God um, or physical purity where some people like get really obsessed with like pure eating and, and they won't touch anything processed or they'll not, you know, all these kinds of purity that we have. It requires a really hard rules and really hard borders because the moment you break those borders down, you have other things getting in that aren't homogenous, right? Yeah. And one of the big things in our theology was that God's holiness was so extensive. Well, at least what I was taught, God's holiness is so extensive that he cannot exist with Im- impurity. Um, it, I think there's a verse, I forget which book it's in, but it's by his great love, we are not consumed, meaning that it's God's love that protects us from being consumed by his own holiness and his own wrath against impurity and against unholiness. And so this idea that we are impure and separate from God is because we are no longer holy and we're no longer compatible with his likeness. And so The moment that you are only concerned with purity, then you have to have obedience and you have to have conformity and you have to have uh, homogenous like for like ideas or practices or whatever. Now, the problem with this is that as Daniel Miller was saying, like empathy threatens purity because as soon as you step into somebody else's shoes and see that their experience with reality or life is different or their ideas are different, all the things that you're worried about getting into your circle of purity, um, empathy breaks down those borders because you can't, once you put yourself in someone else's shoes, you it becomes very difficult to maintain not only those hard Uh, like those hard borders that separate the pure from the impure, but it makes it really difficult to mete out punishment on those people once you understand where they're coming from. And it's very telling, I think, that God's first port of call is to ostracize. So in the uh, Garden of Eden, he casts out, he directs his believers in the Old Testament to throw sinners outside of the gate and even Jesus himself is shown as this sacrifice that God sort of casts out in order to reconcile you know humanity to himself so it's this weird thing that rather than trying to actually understand creation or understand where quote-unquote sinners might be coming from the immediate thing is ew don't taint me I don't want to know where you're coming from. You failed my standards and I cut you out. Yeah. Right? And so what we're actually seeing is God was primarily concerned with purity and obedience because he had no problem meeting out borders and meeting out punishment. And I think that that, if that is the God that we are told we serve, which is the same Jesus which in order to restore that purity through blood sacrifice, in order to cover the the tainted impurity of these children that are no longer homogenous with their God by covering them in blood so that God sees Jesus and Jesus' purity, not the humans underneath the blood. If that's the God that we serve, who is concerned primarily and only with purity and homogeneity, 
I think that is fucking disturbing. Well, yeah, especially from somebody who like supposedly created us and created us with diversity and (laughs) knows our heart and well, it's supposed to know our heart, but doesn't seem to act on it. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is like, we have all these other scriptures and we've talked about that too, the, the conflicting Mm. stories and conflicting interpretations Mm -hmm. and stuff where it's like, well, but God, God is all loving and he knows your heart. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, did he know Eve's heart? Cause yeah. What about her? You know, I don't know. And I was just thinking too, like, I know we need to wrap up and everything, but I think that it's important to say too that our interpretation of this theology really comes down to the way we were raised in our church. And I'm sure theologians who look at this text would have different things to say based on the Hebrew and the Greek and be like, wow, your guys' evangelicalism really missed the mark based on like the original text or what we think and whatever else. But um, the the truth of the matter is regardless of whatever uh some of that original text or different interpretations from different um, denominations say our denomination really pushed these things. Mm-hmm. Like we accepted this as literal truth. Yeah. I mean, you and I come back to this all the time is that it doesn't really matter that there are a pile of different denominations that have different interpretations uh, because that's actually the point. The point mm-hmm. is that, Christians everywhere in good faith are approaching scripture and are coming away with vastly different gods. Yeah. And that they're all supported and they're all supported supported by text somewhere along the line. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on what you include and what you exclude. And I think that is problematic at its core because then what you're going what you're doing is you are then not only cherry picking within those denominations of what you're emphasizing what you're not emphasizing because it's all there in the text but you're actually as a christian trying to to figure that out you're also cherry picking which version of god is most palatable to you and i think that that that's what i'm doing (laughs) That's what I'm doing, Sarah. Like, you know me, I'm trying not to be an atheist. I'm trying to have some sort of spirituality or faith. And so I'm like, you know what? That doesn't really fit with me. So I can't. That was not a judgment statement. That was was no judgment there. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I'm saying that like jokingly, but at the same time, totally true. Like, I am still working through my faith and I am like throwing some things out as I go, being like, ha. Yeah. You know what? Those genocides, they don't work with me so they don't jive with you know this all loving god thing so i don't know what i'm gonna do with those but i'm gonna have to put them in a different box (laughs) yeah it's sort of funny because it's like i've had similar conversations with people close to me about you know the boxes and it's like you know that is what christians have to do not only as denominations multiply right because that's what it is denominations are just people putting different verses in different boxes, right? Um, We're not about this. We believe this is the core thing that we focus on. We don't focus on these other verses. We've just shoved them all in a box. And then (laughs) the other ones are like, well, actually we like those verses and we're going to- That's what I'm doing. I'm making my own denomination. That's what I'm up to. I'm just slowly working on my own denomination. (laughs) Your own denomination, just like many Christians before you. 
my um, newsletter's coming soon. Everyone can be on the lookout. <laughs> Tithing 20% to my religion because I need the cash. <laughs> cash flow to help. Um, but, I think, but I think that that is a good defense as well, because I think a lot of times, especially for people deconstructing and, and wrestling with their faith, um, they're often told that they're relativists or that they're just cherry picking things. Newsflash everyone has cherry picked like like your entire system is cherry picked right you can't approach like 2000 year old scripture and think that you were there and you understand the language and you knew exactly what was going on or what was taken seriously in words and what wasn't and what were were terms terms of phrases and yada yada and just go yeah i'm just gonna apply this wholeheartedly to my life in the correct method no everyone is cherry picking throughout history of what version they want best. So anyone out there, if you have like friends or family telling you that as you're deconstructing, that you're just cherry picking, they have cherry picked. They've cherry picked simply by choosing one church, choosing a Lutheran church over a Baptist, over a Pentecostal, over an Anglican, Mm -hmm. over a Catholic, they have cherry picked. So um, sorry to break it to you, whoever whoever your, your uh, family, your friends are, but very picked. And so I think sometimes what deconstruction is, is just that beginning of that journey where you realize that things are cherry picked and you realize that there are actually a lot of contradictory messages about what God is like, and a lot of really disturbing ideas about what God is like. And the beginning of deconstruction is understanding that, oh, you're in this position now where you're looking at it and going, I don't actually want to cherry pick in that way. Like I understand my own position. I actually want to look at this scripture in the plain light of day. And I think that that's where the struggle and the hurt and the the difficulties come in as you deconstruct is, is, is going, well, what is reality then? What is true? What is actually there? Um, because you actually realize that you've been your denomination's been cherry picking all along your your version of truth like you want to look at it objectively what you said like under the light of day like what is what is real what is true but you've been told your whole life that the only thing that is true is god's truth and the only thing that is wise Mm -hmm. is god's wisdom so it's like well i have this logic or these worldly facts that are lining up and really persuading me, but I'm supposed to throw those out and only accept this, this text as what is true and, and whatever interpretation that's been given to me. Um, So it is a pretty hard position because at some point you will have to use the brain that God's given you to kind of decipher what you're comfortable with. Like, are you going to go with the version that your church and your surroundings has told you as, you know, God's truth and wisdom, or are you going to use your critical mind and, you know, the entire kind of buffet of truth that the world can, can give you through science and through counsel and people who've gone before you and who are, you know, theologians, but maybe not even Christians. Um, and and trying to come up with what you think is actually right or actually true and that's no small feat it's not but in a weird way it is nice like I feel like for the first time in my life I'm actually able to go off the fruit of things Hmm. so like there was a lot of fruit in my life that was not good based on 
on the theology that I was heavily um, applying to my life. And it's nice now to, when I see fruit that isn't healthy, I can go, oh, well, I can just change that underlying thing, right? Or when fruit is good and I see good fruit in other people's lives, I can go, oh, well, that, you know, like you said, science, or I'm not saying science Mm -hmm. is perfect. This I hate whenever people contrast science to religion. It's not a contrast. It's just that science is allowed to change as ideas and more research come available. Whereas a lot of times, regardless of information and research, a lot of times religion is determined to remain the same and it refuses to change Mm -hmm. in the light of information. So it's so nice to be in a position where we just go, oh yeah, like this is not actually healthy for me. I can, I can get rid of this. I don't need to, I don't need to, you know, go off of this. Right. I love that you're using like a spiritual principle to throw out other spiritual things. Yes. (laughs) I'm using, I'm looking at the fruit of the spirit or the fruit in my life to realize that this other scripture is bullshit. So we're told to to judge a tree by its fruit, right? Yeah. yeah. And that seems the most logical thing. Like here's the fruits of the spirit and how to check if something is good in your life. Oh, but don't look at scripture and don't look at the theology and don't look at anything in your life using these tools. You only use it to judge other people or the world. And that checks out. (laughs) But it is funny funny too, because Krista, you uh, touched on the critical thinking thing. And that was actually one of the points that we had talked about back and forth is like, you know, when you're looking at boxes and, and weighing and considering, but like, Critical thinking is something that humans are wired with in the sense of like thinking about things and trying to process the world around them. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe not everyone has the same level of critical thinking skills, obviously, like we didn't, and we're picking up the slack now, but like, well, yeah, it's a practice. (laughs) It's a practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that being said, what that means is the more introspective, the more thoughtful and the more um, careful people are in terms of how rapidly they accept things or how quickly they jump into things or how the more they follow along those lines, which none of those are bad things. And we're uh, many people are wired that way. The more people are like that, those people actually have a harder time being saved. And so the salvation even that God offers, like we said before, it's quote unquote universal, unless you don't accept it. And then it's not universal, right? It's for everybody, but it's actually not unless you obey and come back to the God who essentially wounded you in the first place. But on top of that, if your brain is wired differently, and if your brain is towards those things of being really careful about decisions, looking hard at evidence, trying to do the right thing, um, being more critically minded in terms of comparing and contrasting things and, and, you know, reading about stuff and being interested in the world. As soon as those are part of your personality, too bad for you. You know what I mean? It's like you actually have to actively cut off those parts of your body and cut off those parts of your um, personality and your brain because they don't serve you in terms of making it easy to be saved. And it's like, what kind of a God would design quite a large swathe of human beings who have certain brain functions and are sort of Mm -hmm. not content with just accepting the status quo 
um, what kind of God would frame not only that salvation is difficult because not everyone gets a good example of a Christian in their life in the first place. In fact, many examples are wrong and terrible. So your exposure to Christianity is already limited, one, across the world. Two, the exposure that you have is tainted because there are a lot of terrible Christians. And three, your own brain power and your own wiring limits you even further. And then your eternity is based on that. Yeah. Like if if I'm actually my true authentic self, the way you've made me, mm. I am unsavable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that kind of brings us full circle to the fact of why would I even need to be saved if this wasn't set up the way you had set it up? Totally. You know, so it's like, okay, do you love me for who I really am and who you made me to be? Because that's pretty difficult to understand if you set this up for my suffering and everybody's suffering, and then you can't even save me because my mind thinks a certain way because you made me that way. And that his salvation model didn't um, adjust for the fact that with a fallen framework, people's minds would work differently. Once you inserted the the lens of sin into, into reality, it's like God's sort of solution didn't accommodate the fact uh, of Christians being sinful and broken and awful people. It didn't account for the fact that God himself is often distant and doesn't answer prayers and is very vague and isn't very present a lot of the times. And his model for salvation didn't account for the fact that human brains would be wired differently post-fall. And what we come back to then is what I was talking about is like God actually, his original model was about being homogenous and obedient and pure. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't about being unique or different or complicated. It was about obedience. And I think once that obedience was broken, it was like, oh, you go and here's a pile of curses. And if you don't obey me, you go to hell for eternity. That's my salvation. But I want you to, but I want you to obey me because I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And if you loved me, you would obey me. (laughs) If you loved me, you'd obey my commands. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Wow. This has been a, this has been a whirlwind. Yeah. (laughs) But we also need to, as you, as usual, wrap it up. I'll probably try and edit out some of my cursing because I believe I probably said the F You said feck, you said fecking hell. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I might, I might replace the fecking hell with like a, I, lo- like a- <laughs> I really love the fecking hell. It actually reminded me of the Irish version. <laughs> yeah, the Irish version. version. It's softer. It doesn't yeah. mean. As- it wasn't quite. Yeah. If the you weren't Catholics, so severe. If the Catholics could figure out how to swear appropriately, I think we can learn how to do it. <laughs> I think that I've mastered that one. I'm actually trying to hone that back now that I have a toddler who's saying everything i say yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> that one krista <laughs> thanks <laughs> yeah um, anyway i was gonna say we hope you guys enjoyed this but it's really an enjoyable podcast yeah we didn't really like end on a good note um yeah. thanks for listening everyone and we will catch you next time <laughs>